We did have an amazing interview. I have to tell you, she sent me the questions late last night that she wanted to pursue. I was so impressed. The questions are really great. They were very thoughtful questions. They pointed to someone who is a thinker and someone who is reaching for, you know, the spiritual ground you and I have talked about and worked on. She comes out from that ground, the, the, the ground of self-inquiry. This is the perfect way to start your day, start your business, start your life, change your mentality, understand where your powerfulness comes from. She can help you get there. She gives great advice. She has so much wisdom, so much that you can learn from her. I feel more powerful, in control, and more creative after listening to Sabrina's podcast. I wish I were creating this podcast. Welcome to the Success with Sabrina podcast, sponsored by Time Strategic Consulting Group. Hear from successful businessmen and businesswomen and how they became successful sharing tips and techniques with you to foster change and build success with ease and flow, helping you overcome your toughest trials and biggest challenges to finally go for it and make money and create the epic life that you deserve. To get more information about our consulting, public speaking, and business success membership club, go to www.timestrategic.com. Welcome to Success with Sabrina podcast. Our goal is to help you define what success means to you. And once you do it, to help you achieve it. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, the incomparable Mike McCulloughs. Mike is the author of Profit First, Clockwork, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and his newest release, Fix This Next. By his 35th birthday, Mike had founded and sold two companies, one to private equity and another to a Fortune 500. Today, he is running his third multi-million dollar venture, Profit First Professional. Mike is a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a former business makeover specialist on MSNBC. Over the years, Mike has traveled to the globe, speaking with thousands of entrepreneurs, and he is here today to share the best of what he has learned. Thank you, Mike, for being on the show. Sabrina, it's good to see you, and thanks so much for having me. Yes. So, Mike, I have heard you define success um, as success is not achieved with a better plan, but with a better understanding of ourselves. Yeah. So can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So I think we, we simply determine our own measurements of success. And what I equate it, equate it to is a sense of fulfillment, happiness, gratitude. To me, that's the definition of success. And so it's not a dollar figure, which in the entrepreneurial space, uh, that's what you hear all the time. You, when, you know, once you have that first million dollars in revenue or 50 million or 100 million, that's when you're successful. But from my own personal experiences and all the owners I studied, no, success is really fulfillment. It's, it's where we see ourselves of contribution and of service. And our business really becomes a platform for that. Yeah. Ironic, I shouldn't say ironically, there is a necessity for money. I mean, we have to maintain the health of our companies. We have to be profitable, but that's not success. It's simply sustainability, the cash component. It's really that contribution, fulfillment, that, that internal sensation. That's what success is. 
Yeah, and that comes with our own uniqueness. Um, how did you go about discovering your own uniqueness and then taking that, I guess, competitive edge, I would call it, and and translate it into something that would serve others? Like, how was the process? I know it's a complicated question to answer, but no, I it really it. I helps it. all the entrepreneurs out there trying to define success on their own terms and then also being able to translate that into something that they can serve. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of a... Um... I don't know, an oxymoron, but as as I've released the feeling or necessity around traditional success uh, and competition, I've become more successful and more competitive, um, which is kind of almost counterintuitive. But uh, when I started my first business, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. So I started my first business when I was 23 years old. And uh, from day one, it wasn't about the business, it was about making money. And I, I did what I knew, which was computer technology, but I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be rich. That's success. And as the business achieved those elements, I found I, there was never enough. Like, like, I sold my first business to private equity. That was great. Uh, my second company was acquired by a Fortune 500. I, I made a lot of money. And I was like, okay, I, I must have arrived. And that fulfillment lasted for a few seconds maybe. But then I was like, is this all there is? And oh, it must be a higher number. For me, and, and so many entrepreneurs, that becomes the trap that when do we arrive? And the, the point is, you'll never arrive. It is, it's about the journey, as we've heard. And when I had that realization, um, it actually came about on my third venture. I started a third company trying to really make a lot of money all at once. I, I was an angel investor starting all these different companies, running them in parallel. And of the 10 companies I started, all 10 had failed. Nine failed within six months. The last one took a while, but it failed. And um, I wiped myself out financially and had to start anew, which was a devastating period, but it was in that period where I also realized that I didn't know the entrepreneurial journey and, and maybe I didn't understand what success was. So I started to redefine it. I, I started journaling and writing stuff down. It was actually in that process where I discovered, oh, I should be writing books. Not because people even want them. <clears throat> I need to write books for me to figure out what I don't know. And uh, that, that started uh, pursuing an, uh, a career as an author. So, Yeah, I love where you're going with this because... Um, for, for the listeners out there trying to figure it out where they find their uniqueness, um, I, I find that a lot of times when we can't find it, uh, and sometimes we go to the bookstore and we're looking for the answers to our own questions, and, um, and there you go. If you can't find the answers, that means that that has something to do with your voice, it has something to do with your uniqueness, and you have to kind of go out there and begin the process of un. un Holding all of that for yourself, and perhaps you can help others along the way, right? Just totally, totally. And uh, at least for me, that's become the ultimate definition: is helping others. But one of the others is ourselves. Okay. I, I think we also skip over that. I, I see people go to the extreme of being of such great service to others, but they don't consider themselves, and they're not financially viable, or they become unhealthy, or something, and then it defeats their entire ability to be of contribution. So when we talk about contributing and serving others. We're part of that mix. We must serve ourselves too. And uh, that, to me, becomes the definition of success. Here's the greatest irony. I've actually made more money as an author. I'm far more profitable as an author than I was running these multi-million dollar businesses. And uh, I found a way also to make uh, authorship a very sizable business. Uh, you know, I got 12 employees, which is a small business. But compared to many of my contemporaries, you know, they're sole proprietorships. It's just them. Right. So I, I found ways um, to, to achieve uh, this mix of outcomes, but, but it is all rooted in 
contribution, being of service and, and fulfillment. I, I feel good about that, you know? Yeah. And I think going back to our conversation earlier about knowing yourself, I think that once you know what you're best at, then you can really take that organization and delegate the parts that are not going to be serving people because that's not what your greatest strength is. And I see that that's what you've done with, uh, with your business, really. You have taken the, the areas of strength, which is speaking and writing, and you've really honed in on that and then let all the other areas uh, be performed and, and led by other people. So I love- That's exactly that. right. You know, I, I, I used to believe I need to control it all. Oh, I'm a business owner after all. You know, I got to work harder. I got to be the person carrying it. And the realization was that's not true. I just need to step into areas that I feel I'm strong at and I enjoy. And usually those work in parallel. If you like to do something, you're usually pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's being the spokesperson for our company. You know, I, I, that's where I am, the spokesperson. And I write the book. And um, behind me, uh, I shouldn't say behind me, walking arm in arm with me is probably a better analogy, is a, a team of leaders that uh, are leading the different organizations. You know, as an author... I don't even run my authorship business. That's run by Kelsey. She's the president of our company. She oversees a, a small team that's working on that. Um, for Profit First Professionals, an organization we developed behind my book, Profit First, Ron Saharian is the, the leader for that, the managing director, and he, he, he's managing it. So, and which frees me up to do more of what I do, uh, which has become more of a spokesperson, which brings in more, cons- operation, um, more opportunity and consideration for the businesses, and those businesses can flourish. It, it really did take me kind of pulling away my ego, thinking, I know it all. I'm the best at this stuff. To realize, no, I'm really not. Do the thing I'm good at and stay, stay in that lane. Yes. And for the aspiring author out there that um, is looking into embarking on this journey, what would be the number one tip uh, for someone that, that wants to write a book and <clears throat> is looking to get into this career? You know, I think we still do start the end in mind, but we let the journey reveal itself. So if you're looking to become an author or start a business, get very clear about what that is like. And I, and I do it at a sensory level. I don't write down, you know, uh, we're, well, our P&L will look like this. I don't do it over the numbers. That may be part of it. But I want to talk about like, what's, this, the, what's the feeling I have when I walk into my office? Or do I have an office? Am I totally mobile? And um, how are uh, clients feeling when they do work with me? Or how's a reader feel when, when they discover something in one of my books? I got very clear about that stuff. And uh, I, I had the, I'd use pictures and documentation and I put it up on the wall and say, that's, that's what I, my, my, my mission is. Then I rewound all the way back today and say, what is the singular most important action I can take today to move toward that? Not the big action, but the small action just today. And once that's complete, what do I do the next day and the next? So I rewound it all the way back to the next step. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need to do. I have, to have a clear vision. And then start in the beginning and, and take what's the first step you can do to move toward starting that business and launching it. For some of us, it's just irrevocable action, meaning just tell your friends and your family, I'm starting a business and starting on January 1st or whatever the day is. And that's the first commitment. And now it's out there in public. Well, now it's a high accountability. Then maybe the second steps is getting some of the legal work in place so you can formally, formally structure the business. And then maybe the next step after that. But it always has an end vision. And then you rewind to what's the immediate, most impactful thing you can do today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So shifting <clears throat> gears a little bit, Mike. Now, there's a lot of fear out there going on, right? And um, 
And a lot of, of the business owners right now, they're thinking, how am I going to survive this, right? Do I have yeah. cash flow right now at this point in time to, to face what's ahead of me, which is a lot of uncertainties and things like that? What would you say to the entrepreneur right now at this day and age that we're living? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of ways I see people respond. First, some people duck their head in the sand or go into denial, and uh, that's a problem because that, that means it's just going to ball over you. You need to respond. Other people go into this, this kind of circular tumbling uh, wheel of trying to fix everything, and that's actually just as bad. You start spinning your wheel so fast that you start sinking into the mud. It's, it's really about specific, deliberate action. And um, so the first thing is measure, is your business actually being affected? And how is it being affected? As opposed to saying, you know, I've lost everything. What does that mean? Let's look at the actual numbers, taking that pause. Then what have we retained? So it's not just what we lost. What have we retained? And the stuff we've retained, why, did it, that, why is that continuing on? Maybe that's an area of strength and maybe I can amplify that. Or if I've lost people or clientele, why have I lost? And, and really doing some analysis. Then it's always about taking the one step. And with, with an established business, and what I'm doing in my own business is I look at my client base and, and I'm applying the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. There is a portion of clients, uh, customers, who represent, in most cases, the majority of revenue or profitability for an organization. Well, we really need to build a wall around them and protect that relationship more than anything right now. Mm-hmm. So you know, losing a client can be very different if it's a top client versus one of those clients that is, is at the bottom of your list so and difficult to deal with. Let's get a little specific and like, what would you, what kind of actions would you take to protect that clientele and make sure that um, you're preventing <clears throat> any further losses and things like that? So two things. First of all is look upstream, meaning they're coming in to do business with you. But we usually only look at our relationship. We got to look at the next relationship beyond that. Our clients' clients, how are they being affected? What's going on with them? Because if those clients are having specific problems and maybe they do less work with your client, well, now your client's going to have that burden and they're going to pass on to you. So you can actually look what's coming your way by analyzing the client's clients. So that's one move I would definitely do. Uh-huh. The second thing is to do more frequent but smaller bite-sized communications. And I see people messing this up. I actually saw another email today. This diatribe of information uh, that this company's providing, and maybe it's relevant, maybe it's not, but it's too much to absorb. I, I have a sensation, and many business owners do, we got to do stuff quickly now. Now, the other response is no communication at all, and that's horrible too, because then it's like, hold on, this vendor I've worked with, what happened to them? They simply disappeared. So no communication is bad, and over-communication in regards to quantity is bad. So we actually want to communicate more frequently, but in bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. Just a quick email or note or call saying, hey, we're here for you. Everything's okay. And our core services remain. Reach out if you need us. Then two days later, did you know we can do this one thing for you? Uh, whatever that service is, it's ready and available. Then three days later, hey, hope you're okay. Maybe two days after that, hey. you know, And, and it's these small bite-sized communications where the consumer can digest it in seconds. They have a reassurance, I am there, I'm active, I'm present, so they know I am not gone. And it triggers thoughts of how they can utilize my services in a better or different way. Yeah, so you stay front and center, right? Because there's so many worries right now and uh, that communication is going to help 
for your customers to really think of you <laughs> at yeah. least. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Um, so are, are we headed into a depression? Like, let's talk about this. Um, I know that you've been posting um, uh, quite a few things about that right now. And what are business owners should be thinking about and doing right away besides what we've already talked about, if, if that is really what's going to happen? Yeah. So my experience is we're going into a recession uh, or depression. I don't know. Um, there's no question in my mind. And my experience around this is uh, I've had businesses through two recessions. So 2001, uh, there was a trigger event, an activity that happened that then caused an already unstable economy to, to go off the cliff. And what it was, was the terrorist attack. Also the dot-com bubble happened and that. Well, that happened and then already shaky financials, macro policy uh, or macro economics causes this drop off. And we feel this experience for, you know, we went through a recession. Well, there's different ways to gauge a recession, but my understanding is the government rating was about a year and a half to two years, but the impact may be longer. Then 2008, same thing. There's the economic decline, homing, real estate collapse. And what happens, that's a trigger event, real estate collapse. And then phew, we went into the great recession. And that was, you know, another year or two years uh, before we started this climb out, which is which the way it's manifested. This one has been very, even though the economics have been strengthening, businesses have been moving trepidatiously because the Great Recession of 2008 was such a de devastating one for so many businesses. Well, now we had the trigger event. This trigger event was COVID. And we're now, you can see the, the stock market collapsing. You see business shutting down to an extreme measure. On top of that, we already have the uh, that bite you know, once bitten, twice shy. We got that bite from 2008. So I see businesses, in some cases, acting irrationally, just total shutdown or totally trying to to drop prices or do whatever is to retain business without much thought. Mm -hmm. All those things, that hyper reaction um, and economic shakiness going into this, there, there's no question we're going to go through it. But we, we as small business owners have a choice. I truly believe we can say we're going to participate in this recession or not. I'm not going to say it's going to be easier, but if you choose to participate in a recession, it's kind of, it's a fait accompli and there's nothing I can do. And we get tumbled along as the, the tidal wave comes through, or we can say, I'm not going to participate. And what I mean by that is simply making action and choice to grow the business, to improve the business during circumstances. And uh, one example Many small businesses will lose, say, 10% of their customer base just because the customer base says, you know what, I was questioning if I should do business with this company anyway. This is an opportunity. And maybe they're saying this subconsciously, but it's an opportunity to leave and maybe I'll go elsewhere. Or maybe I'm just done. Well, if I have a small business and I have 50 clients and I lose 10%, that's five clients. But if the big competitor down the street has 5,000 clients of this in the same space and they lose 10%, they lose 500. So I'm losing five, they lose 500. Instead of looking behind me and saying, oh, these clients I lost, you know, by not participating in the economy, I look the other way. Well, there's a, f a flood of 500 clients that are being unserved. I can grab this opportunity. And I, they, some of them will say, I don't need any service, but some of them will be using as a justification to leave your competition and, and are looking for service. So you can gobble them up. I won't be surprised when we come out of this recession, whenever it happens, that you hear story after story of small businesses that have actually got a stronger foothold during this period. And, and it all starts off with the choice. Yeah, it's a, a, absolutely true. You know, I remember in 2008, because I began my career while I was still in college, I used to knock doors selling pest control agreements. And in 2008, I was selling door-to-door -door in California. 
And um, some of the streets uh, where me and a few other team members were selling, I swear, there were like, um, you know, <clears throat> eight foreclosure signs, you know. Um, but we still kept going and we found people that bought from us. And it was like very interesting to see our manager at the office go like, wow, I fired someone and I have to hire someone else because you guys are still bringing sales in. And it was just so surprising to him. And for us too, it was a testament to what you're speaking of that, you know, if you get frozen and you really get paralyzed, uh, you will um, contribute actually to your detriment. Right? Oh, right, right. Because of self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, how our company is responding to, it was interesting at the beginning of this quarter, we had a sit down meeting um, right at January 1st, right around then. And said, if a recession comes, because it's inevitable, we just don't know if it's two years from now or two days from now. We didn't know it was this imminent. What products do we need to offer? And we, we've already strategized around this. So what we're experiencing is inevitable. It's the timing that we don't know. But the, the process is inevitable. This repeats over and over and over again in history. But every time, <clears throat> it feels shocking to our system because we're living through it. So we prepared in advance and uh, we discovered a few things. The things we didn't enact upon is, and there's still opportunity for us and others, is there certain products and service offerings that actually grow or maintain in a recession? Always, every time. Staples, <clears throat> like toilet paper, obviously. If there are big runs going on toilet paper. Um, food staples. Uh, alcohol actually usually goes on an increase, alcohol consumption. And um, funerals. You know, I never really thought about it, but people don't say, well, I'm going to put off dying for a few years because there's a recession. You know, funeral rate increases. So can we modify our offering to cater to those communities or maybe even offer something directly to the customers of that market? Mm -hmm. um, but also we realize that customers will become more price conscious, not margin conscious, and that's different. So price conscious means I want to buy something at a lower cost point. Margin is me as the business owner, how much financial benefit I win you know, per transaction percentage-wise. And so what we started doing is creating lower cost products with uh, in maintained or increased margins for ourselves and um, had started developing that. So now we're starting to roll these out because we're, we're in the position to do it. But I think that's still an opportunity for many businesses is repackaging your offer. Still the same core competency, still do what you're known for, but deliver in a new flavor where it's more palatable to our customers. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of your books, uh, Clockwork, is uh, it really hones in on like being uh, smart with your time, right? And I think that now more than ever, we entrepreneurs need to be thinking about this. And um, we all struggle with protecting our time, right? And what is your internal conversation with yourself, Mike, like when it comes to how you relate to time and, and all of that? Yeah, so time as far as I know, is the only non-replenishable asset, right? I, like you use it or you lose it. You know, we just continue forward. And um, many business owners put little value in their time. You know, in fact, the, the response is the opposite. They say, you know, I'm going I'm to work my tail off because I'm such an expendable resource. I'm, I'm going to work longer, harder hours. Well, for, for what reason? You know, the consequence of the business is if a business owner works harder and longer, the business becomes less and less efficient. It just becomes more and more dependent. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do as business owners is extract ourselves from the business to design the business to operate itself. Now, of the world population, only 7% of the world will ever start a business. The vast minority of 
people ever start or run a business. The other 93% work for the people that started businesses. So there is this massive uh, need out there in society for business owners uh, to run a business or operate a business so those people can work for them. Yet we're actually even taking that away by running the business ourselves and, 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 and you know, trying to take on all the responsibility. So the goal of a, of a business is extract the owner for multiple reasons. One is it serves the economy. But second, it serves the entrepreneur in, in elevating them to focus on um, outsourcing more, to hiring more people, to designing a business that operates itself. It also creates a form of legacy because if the business, if my business can run in my total absence, my business can go on forever. And so that, that's what I've done. So I, I have like an organization called Profit First Professionals. I'm a spokesperson for it. But if I'm not actively speaking, the business continues on. It is operating. There's employees and I have a business partner too who's running it and they keep moving along. And I've done it with my other businesses. So we have a responsibility, but we have to value time. If we don't put value in it, we think it's expendable. Time is the most precious thing you have and see it that way. And once you start seeing time is so precious, we start behaving around the way we operate our business in a different, better light, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's being said that uh, for businesses, you're either growing or you're dying, right? And I think that the main thing that we need to keep our heads straight on right now is not to get desperate and start firing people without looking at the numbers like you mentioned, going back to what you said earlier, because if that is going to put you exactly at that position that you were trying to get away from, and more than ever, your business needs you now as the thinker, right? The orchestrator, like the, the person that's really going to be there and be creative in how you can change, maybe modify your business in times like this and uh, be able to continue to serve people, perhaps in a different level, in a different way. Uh, but really that role of the thinker is more important now than ever. Right? Yeah. I, I love that you were, used the word desperate because that, that's one of the stages that we go through. So the, when, when something like, hap- like this happens... Uh, we first get shocked and business owners, there's a macro shift, business owners freeze up. And that's a big problem too. If you take no action, inaction can be deadly for a business and it goes out. Other people though, they move on to the desperation stage and desperation is where we overreact. Uh, we do illogical things like, I just need to, I need to take on debt. I, I got to take on debt or I just got to fire everybody. And we make these actions without consideration of the impact on the business. So what we actually need to do is take pause. That's why I wrote Fix This Next is, you know, when, when something happens, is this really the next thing? What is the right thing to work on next? And instead of just taking the apparent obvious, we got to fire all our employees, we got to, is, is just taking a, a brief pause and saying, what's in the best interest and health of the company? What's the data that backs this? You know, maybe our, I actually saw one business saying, you know, we're in real trouble and their sales were going up and they didn't even realize, they just assumed. They weren't so, looking at the numbers, right? They weren't, look, they, they weren't looking at the numbers. They, they just said, well, you know, everyone else is collapsing. We're in real trouble. And then when they looked at the numbers, it's like, oh, we actually had a sales increase. So we need to take that pause. We need to be thoughtful and deliberate about it. And uh, business owners are needed more than ever now in being leaders. You know, this economic crisis is affecting everybody. So everyone is afraid. And when everyone's afraid, they will look very quickly for who's confident and who's moving forward. We, as the leaders of our small business, we need to demonstrate that. We need to say, this is the way we're going. This is our way out. We need to be thoughtful about it. We need to listen. We need to empathize. But we got to start walking in a direction so that we can get our team going in that direction. If we are panicked too and we try to start doing more things, it just perpetuates the panic. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I've heard you talk about uh, a lot about efficiency. And so now is the time to even think more, how can you run an efficient business, right? Um, so. 
for instance, part-time employees, um, is that something that people could be considering instead of, you know, getting desperate and firing them right away? Uh, what are some other things that business owners could be thinking about doing right now to ease the pain of the loss of customers or whatever it is that they're going to be experiencing? Yeah, so part-time employees are amazing. Uh, most of our staff is part-time. And the power is part-time employees uh, can throttle up or throttle down. So when there's more demand, most of our part-time employees who aren't on a personal tight, tight schedule can actually be of more service when we need them and go back to their normal hours or drop in service when we don't. So that's one thing. But I would also look at the core competency. Like, what are we best at? And consider jettisoning certain products or offerings that are more of a distraction. There's an interesting analysis run around the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 rule, by a company called Strategex in Chicago. I think that was their name. And they ran this analysis and basically said, look at your clients and look at your products. And what you'll identify is that the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 rule, that 20% of your clients, the top 20% are, are in most businesses supporting uh, 80% of the profitability and revenue for that company. They're, they're the mainstay. And the bottom clients are usually actually costing the business to stay in business. So you look at your clients and you match up to your products and you'll find the sweet spot. The sweet spot is your best clients buying your best products. Mm -hmm. Those clients you want to protect and where we start over, over, not over, but more frequently communicating in smaller bites. The lower clients, you actually may want to jettison those ones that were never happy, always complaining. Now they're going to even complain more because they have less money. They won't pay you um, and they're buying from you. Maybe we jettison them. So reanalyzing our, our uh, clients. And then the third thing I would do is... Uh, consider your product offerings themselves. Like what, how can you modify your product offerings to order, offer them more efficiently, uh, increasing the margin by a lower cost point? And that's definitely doable. Those are the three things I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And as, as we're in the topic of being efficient, right? So we're talking about serving your best clients. And then another topic would be, um, should look at your employees and not think of the pyramid, uh, uh, you know, old way of, uh, you know, giving people jobs by titles, but really looking at the employees and their traits and then giving them the tech, right? That, yes. that they would be great at. Now, um, in, in looking at that, how do you go about it? Like, do you actually uh, interview them and you have a set of questions that you ask them? Like, what exactly is your, uh, I guess, process uh, for you to determine those traits and then um, to match up with the tasks? Like, do you have yeah, a method so for that? Yeah, Sabrina. So we use uh, a role assessment as an R-O-L-E role. And uh, what we found is in a traditional business, we use a pyramid-like structure for an org chart. We have you know, the word president, and we put me up, the word me up there. And we have a long line coming down, down, down. And way below that is you know, the first level of employees and below them. And that's our communication structure, which is based upon titles uh, and then we put people to the titles. Roles are really, what is the core functions my business needs in these different capacities? And what type of person do I need doing it? Now, when it comes to consideration of people, we then look for their number one ability. You know, sadly, many businesses look at a title, I need a receptionist, and say, well, a receptionist has like 10 different responsibilities. You got to answer the phone. If someone walks in the door, you got to be a greeter. You have to do some data entry when the phones are quiet. And we list different tasks. And then what we do is we look for someone that can fill that entire title. But uh, maybe they, they stink at the a little light accounting work, but are great at greeting. So we never consider them because they miss the accounting part. We're looking for that perfect person that can fill in. 
the, the better way is to match to the, the, the tasks to their talent. So I look at someone that comes in, they're amazing at greeting. Okay, they can fill the greeting component at reception, but they can also be my first front, uh, first line of sales and maybe their customer service. So now they can play in multiple parts of the organization. And by matching talent to tasks, I start building this web-like structure. So instead of this pyramid uh, structure where it's like me and everyone else down, now it becomes this web where you shift people around and, and they lose the title, they serve the function. Yeah, I love that, you know. And um, actually, I think that it would also be really cool if you start thinking of the main role that, or the main task that, because, you know, we all perform so many different tasks in our jobs, but yeah. there's always, just like we've talked or you've talked about the queen bee role, right? Yes. Um, so even within like that employee, that person that we're talking about, there is a queen bee role, right? And if we can actually match the title of that person, be creative with it, have some fun, right? Like yeah, yeah. in our business, you know, uh, our receptionist, her main or him, right? But her main job is really, she is supposed to be focusing on retaining customers, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of uh, calling her receptionist, we call her customer loyalty specialist, right? Well, there you go. Yeah, That's yeah, her yeah. Title. So it's like having fun with those titles so that it's really clear and, you know, it's spoken out in the open, right? Like what is your main queen bee role? You know, there's power because people comply with with that. Meaning if, if I was your customer loyalty specialist and I, I if people ask me what do I do and I say that, I will start behaving consistently with that. It's a normal thing. What, you know what's fascinating is, and small businesses make this mistake all the time, a small business will bring on someone and say, you know, you're my new chief financial officer, CFO. And, um, you know, these are small companies of under 10 employees. Well, in the true definition of CFO, I've never been to a company under like 500 employees. Uh, that's a little bit big. Maybe under 100 employees that need a CFO. It's usually just a bookkeeper you need or a controller or controller. But we're calling them CFO. Well, what happens is that employee actually starts owning that title and says, I'm the chief financial officer. And then they go looking at the ads and like, wow. And I actually had this happen. I had a CFO in my own business. And he came to me and said, you know what? Uh, I was looking at the ad for GE. They pay their CFO $750,000. you are paying me $50,000. you are ripping me off. You owe me seven fifty. dollars I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like we're a small company. We, you're not really a CFO. And they're like, you call me a CFO. So there's misconception. It's like a trap, right? Like you're setting yourself a trap for your business. I trap myself. I trap myself. Um, And and so the only way to resolve that ultimately was to let this person go and see what a real CFO was like. Um, And they never came back. They went. uh, They couldn't get a real CFO job and they moved elsewhere. Um, But but the mistake was not theirs. It was me. So be very careful about these grand titles that speak to corporate rules we got to use titles that speak to the roles. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Now, um, Mike, I, I know you ha- you're a man of amazing, wonderful, and so many qualities and talents. But, <laughs> Tell um, my wife that, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Hopefully, she'll, I'll send her the link to this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, there are two qualities that I really admire in you. And uh, one of them is obviously, we all love to hear you speak. You're um, super fun and you can take complex, uh, you know, Things and turn it into like really simple for, for every entrepreneur to understand. But even more so, your ability to listen. Like I love when you tell your stories and they always come out of the blue. You're there and sometimes you're talking to your son and out of a sudden, because you're really present and you're listening, an idea pops up, right? Yeah, or yeah. you're even gardening and then, you know, the B idea comes up, right? 
And so I think this is such a great quality because as entrepreneurs, um, we need to develop the quality of listening, not in, in the sense of like, you know, I'm going to sit here and really listen to you, but listen between the lines, right? Yeah, yeah. And all of that. So like, can you teach us how to become a better listener? So maybe yeah. that we can also be more creative in our endeavors and in our businesses. Yeah, it's funny. I just, just this morning, uh, I got an idea. I was like, oh, this is this is exactly what I was looking for. And so how I do it is I ask questions constantly and constantly and not of people necessarily, just in my own mind. So like, and, and there's certain core questions. So for example, in my question around marketing, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about marketing and the essence of marketing is really trust. That, that's really the essence of marketing is can I create trust from uh, someone else. And so this, the question is, how do I build trust? Uh, marketing is constantly going. And this morning I just heard uh, someone talking about the power of saying I versus you and that people trust when we use the word I more than you. As an example, they said you get a communication from a utility company or your, your electric company says, you know, uh, in your best interest, we have decided, or for the benefit of our customers, for, the, for your benefit, we are doing, and the second you hear for your benefit, it's like, okay, how are you going to rip me off now, right? Like, but if they said, we, or I have discovered uh, an inability, or uh, I've discovered our company was uh, ineffective in doing something, dot, dot, dot. Now we're going to listen and trust it much more. It's like, oh my gosh, that's it. There, there's a difference in being reflective versus projective. Mm-hmm. So I... Um, the way to do that is constantly ask questions, but don't expect immediate answers. It's not like I'm going to ask something and Google has the answer. Just ask, ask, and ask again. And and the answers will present themselves. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I guess with that would be, you know, the idea of being comfortable with uh, not knowing, right? Being comfortable with uh, sitting there um, with that, I guess, uh, with that really not knowing for a while, which I find that, that people sometimes struggle with that because they just want to grasp and know and, um, sure. and they, they don't create the space, right, for those answers to come within time and, uh, and all of that. But you know how, I, yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, to get rid of that discomfort and make it exciting is I, I actually see as a gift. Like I visualized like this morning, this gift opened up. I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. It's like, you know, when, say your birthday comes around. As a kid, I used to sneak up into the attic where my parents hid the gifts. So I'd carefully unwrap it, see what I was getting, close them up. And then my birthday would come and it was like the biggest letdown ever. It's like, I know everything's coming. <laughs> the day I realized, oh, don't take a peek at the gifts. They will reveal themselves. Makes it a joyous occasion. Well, that's true here too. Is if the, if the answers were just known and just available, there's no wonderment. There's no surprise. It's just there. It's always there. So the, it's in the revealing where there's joy. And so when I asked like, how do we transfer trust? How does marketing really do that? Oh, and then I get excited. I can't wait for the answers to reveal themselves. And they come out of the most unexpected areas. Like this morning, I was at the gym when the answer was given to me. I'm like, at the, who knew the marketing lesson I saw it was at the gym? You know, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of cool and it's kind of fun. And it makes it, it makes it more of a uh, uh, a journey, a mystery, a hunt, and it's super engaging. Yeah, there's nothing more exciting than being pleasantly surprised, right? <laughs> so for the life of an entrepreneur, I mean, that's really what we live for is to get those insights. And- you know, when I'm, when I'm writing my book, Sabrina, um, I will start writing and I'll sit there and go, I cannot wait to see at the end. So I'll write in sessions in sprints, but usually over like four or five hours when I'm really in the most intense part of writing. 
and I'll start writing. I cannot wait to see what reveals itself. I remember I was writing one of my books, Surge, and I'm writing it, and I'm like, I cannot wait to see what reveals itself that day. And I, I interview ended up by the end of the day had lined up an interview for the tallest model of all time. Uh, she was like six seven or six eight. It was just interesting. I was like, I had no idea when the day started that I'd be talking to her. her name was Amazon Eve. That I'd be having a call and researching on Amazon Eve. But the story needed that. And uh, I think that's how it reveals itself, not just writing books, but any part of our work is if we get excited about the unknown and the great mysteries and gems it's going to provide, it becomes a really engaging journey. Mm-hmm. And do you find that, that like being a workaholic, going to the topic, because I, I struggled with that and, and I've heard you talk about that also quite a bit, um, that, um, that, you know, we, we focus so much on working hard and yeah. uh, do you find that, that that actually is counterproductive towards like creativity yeah. and being able to be your best self? Yeah, unequivocally. And uh, I wouldn't have said that 10, 15 years ago. I thought that was the only way to be successful. And uh, the revelation I had is that workaholism is equivalent to being non-productive because there's a justification just to work longer but it doesn't focus on efficiency or productivity or results, which once I had that realization, it was absurd. Um, the, the better question is how does my organization achieve more things with less of my effort? Like that's a real healthy organization. So be very, I, I have to remind myself too, because also I do have that disease of workaholism. I can crank and crank and crank, but I also realize it is the ultimate crutch, debilitating crutch for my company. So if, if anyone listening in is calling themselves a workaholic, realize the downside of that, that, you know, I realized for me, it served an ego, but it was damaging my business. Now I realize it is, it really is a form of disease and uh, I need an outlet for that for me. Um, some other ways to express myself, but I really have the responsibility of the business operating itself. That's the only way it can ultimately grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now we have a question from one of our listeners, Joe. He's asking for the business looking to get creative with their offerings. Are there any best practices for doing so in a lean way? Yeah. So how, how do you get creative being lean? Um, you simply add the question with no money. So how do I, you know, usually creativity is like, how do I uh, wow my customers, comma, with no money? And if we simply, I mean, it's, that, it's literally, that's one of the mechanisms. It's that simple. Um, so, you know, I was prom- I'm promoting my newest book, Fix This Next, actively doing it right now. And um, there's a, I can run ads. I can go on, you know, Facebook and Google and spend a lot of money doing it. So the question we've been asking is, how do we get the same exposure with no money? And the creativity came out. Um, we, we have um, uh, different stores who are willing to display the book, Fix This Next, where small business owners go, but they're not bookstores. So like the UPS store, to have them displayed there. And the owner's like, yeah, display it. And we said, you know, as, as a thank you, take the book down after a week and you can have the book. But we just want to display that this is out here. So, you know, they're getting some kind of benefit, minor benefit, but they're also displaying it. We're telling them that, you know, this book's a small business book and it may strike curiosity and you can explain how your UPS store does more than just shipping packages, how you can do printing services and, and all these different things to support logistics. So it could be a trigger. And uh, that's how we're doing it. And it, it costs nothing. But if we didn't ask with no cost, we go to the obvious, you know, just more Facebook ads. So just, just ask crazy questions. The other thing too is um, we have brainstorms. We have it actually in our office. I wish I could move my camera. We have an 
a section called the, the Mad Lab. And uh, I'll probably do a video of it at some point. It's this crazy room where our team sits down and we think of crazy thoughts of, of how are new different ways to attract attention. Because marketing is, is rooted in the transfer of trust and also in being different and unique. Something that stands out so people notice you and then they trust you uh, is the next step. So how do you do that with no money? And it's just, it's, it's ideas about being different. And, and, they, and the funny thing is they exist. There's countless ways of doing things without money. We just, the big companies have money. It's the lazy, easy way. Small businesses, we just got to put a little more thought into it, but we find it. Yeah, I love that. You know, and we're approaching the time that we're going to end this awesome talk. But I wanted to close with this because I think the biggest takeaway that I got today is that the quality of our lives is based on the quality of the questions that we ask ourselves, right? Yeah. And then the quality of our businesses are based on the questions that we ask uh, our businesses, right? Exactly. Uh, and the thinker entrepreneur in us and how we can solve this problem in a lean way just for Joe, right? But for everybody else that is going to be looking into this right now uh, as we approach this recession. Mike, thank you so much for this valuable time and for all these amazing takeaways that we've got, been getting here. And I appreciate you and all the work that you do for the small businesses and entrepreneurs out there. And the world is a better place because of the work that you do. So thank you. Sabrina, thank you for having me. It's very kind. Thanks for joining us today. To join our free Facebook group and access the links and resources mentioned in the shows and much more, go to www.sabrina-gagnon.com. That is G-A-G-N-O-N. You will become a member of a private Facebook group dedicated to providing the best practices, skills, and strategies to grow your business. And remember, we all have natural advantages that comes from our instinctive power. You are perfectly created to accomplish so much. Let's challenge the status quo and create a business and life you love. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.